You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. He who controls the spice controls the universe. That is a line from Frank Herbert's classic sci-fi novel, Dune. And while the universe wasn't quite at stake in the late 1400s, the sentiment is pretty spot on with regards to the view of the economies of Europe. The spice trade was the single most valuable commodity coming into Europe in the 15th century. Spices came from the Far East, Asia, and China, and of course, the famed Spice Islands, the Moluccas. But getting to the Far East was easier said than done. Trade came overland along the famed Silk Road, or along the coast of the Indian Ocean to Arabia and the Middle East, and then to the Mediterranean. The Italian city-states, particularly Venice, were the main middlemen of Europe, monopolizing the trade of spices as well as gems and silk from Asia, and it made them fabulously rich. Thus everyone wanted to get in on the trade. Trouble was, there were no other trade routes to Asia. In the 1400s, the Portuguese, under the guidance of Henry the Navigator, would become extremely aggressive in seeking out new economic and political opportunities. The Portuguese believed, correctly, that if they could sail their merchant ships around Africa, they could reach the Far East. To this end, Henry began a methodical exploration of the western coast of Africa. It was a gradual process, moving south, uncovering, to Europe's eyes, the geography and makeup of the African continent. Even after Henry's death in 1462, the exploration would continue, and West Africa would become an important part of the growing Portuguese empire, providing gold and ivory and slaves and much more. All this was great, but above all else, what the Portuguese really wanted was a way to Asia. Trouble was, the west coast of Africa just kept going and going. Portuguese explorers mapped out the coast for thousands and thousands of miles, but there was no end. In 1471, they reached the Gold Coast, present-day Ghana. Then, in 1482, they came to the Congo River. A few years later, Cape Cross, in modern-day Namibia, was reached. The Portuguese were still roughly a thousand miles away from the southern tip of Africa. And that leads us to the subject of today's podcast, Bartolomeu Diaz. I want to start out by saying that Diaz is often referred to in his anglicized pronunciation, Bartholomew Diaz. I'm going to try and stick to the Portuguese pronunciation, but know that I grew up calling the guy Bartholomew, so forgive me if I mess up the name during the podcast. I also want to add that there are lots of Portuguese names in this episode, and my pronunciation of them is no doubt suspect. Just a warning. So on with the show. Bartolomeu Diaz was born in 1450 or 1451 in Portugal. Virtually nothing is known about Diaz's younger life. As he would be part of the royal court in later years, it's likely that he was from a noble family. We do know that Diaz was married and that he had two children. 
1482, the recently crowned King John II of Portugal decided to expand his empire in Africa. He put together an expedition of nine ships under the command of Diogo de Azambuju and gave him orders to proceed to the Gold Coast and construct a trading post. Bartolomeu Diaz would be part of the expedition, commanding one of the caravels in the fleet. To have landed such a gig, it's likely that he had already had some experience as a naval or military officer. So, the expedition would be a success. The fortress was constructed on the Gulf of Guinea, giving the Portuguese a critical presence in the area, and allowing them to dominate trade in the region for well over 100 years. After this foray into Africa, Diaz would be appointed to the position of superintendent of royal warehouses. He was also a member of the royal court in Lisbon, and likely in favor with young King John II. And that is our cue to segue to the Portuguese monarch, for he is important to our story. King John II, I'm cheating here and using the anglicized pronunciation of John, because the Portuguese translation is spelled J-O-A-O. And I've said it in past podcasts, João, but I'm not that confident of the pronunciation. Also, history sources tend to reference the man as John, so for our podcast, John it is. Anyhow, John had come to the throne in 1481 at the age of 25. He was an aggressive monarch who consolidated his power at home and pushed hard to expand his influence abroad. He ordered the exploration of the African coast, pushing further and further south with each expedition. Of course, John had his eyes on the Far East. To reach India and the Spice Islands would be an economic gold mine. And to this end, he dispatched spies to the Middle East, India, and East Africa to learn as much as he could about the trade routes that he coveted. But there was another reason that John II was interested in Asia and East Africa, and that was the legendary kingdom of Prester John. If you've never heard of Prester John, you're in for a treat, even if I only hit the high points of the Prester John mythology. Prester John was a legendary king who ruled in a Christian land in the Orient. Some said his kingdom was in India, others in the Middle East. Over time, others said it was in Ethiopia. The tales of Prester John and his Christian kingdom really took off when a letter, supposedly written by Prester John to the Byzantine emperor Manuel, began to circulate around Europe. The letter said that Prester John was the descendant of one of the three Magi, and that his kingdom was in India. In 1177, Pope Alexander III even sent a letter to Prester John, even though he didn't know where to address it, sort of like a kid dropping a letter to Santa Claus in the mailbox. The stories go on like this for centuries, but by the 1400s, the lands of India and China had been visited by Europeans, and no Christian kingdom or Prester John was found. Thus, the popular theory was that Prester John's kingdom was actually in East Africa, specifically Ethiopia. King John was reportedly fascinated by the idea of Prester John, and the spies he sent east had instructions to try and find out more about his kingdom. So King John plotted out his exploration of Africa, aiming to find a new route to Asia, and perhaps the kingdom of Prester John. An expedition under Diogo Cao would reach Cape Cross in modern-day Namibia in 1486. It was the furthest point any European had traveled down the coast, but as noted, it was still a thousand miles away from the southern tip of Africa. But King John was persistent, and so he plotted out his next steps to reach Asia. In 1487, he dispatched two men, Afonso de Peva and Pero da Cavilla, to the Middle East and India to scout the region. But more importantly, he got together yet another naval expedition to sail down the west coast of Africa, enter Bartolomeu Diaz. The year was 1486, and Diaz was, as we pointed out, a member of the royal court. And it's likely that he was viewed favorably upon by John, or else someone else would have been given the expedition command. But it was Diaz who landed the job. 
He was appointed the commander of the fleet with the goal to chart a route to Asia. For this expedition, Diaz would have three ships, including the caravel Sao Cristóvão, which Diaz would command. A second caravel, Sao Pantaleo, was commanded by João Infante, and there was a support ship to be captained by Pero Diaz, Bartolomeu's brother. In August of 1487, the expedition set sail from Lisbon. But before setting out with Diaz on his voyage south, I want to comment on the sources for this podcast. Or, shall we say, lack thereof sources. Like Bartolomeu Diaz himself, there is not a lot about this voyage that is known. The Portuguese were notoriously secretive about their overseas explorations in this era, and at times, details about where they had been wouldn't leak out until decades or even centuries later, and sometimes never. This means a lot of the information about Portuguese exploration at this time was extremely limited. Unfortunately, the actual physical records from Diaz's voyage would be destroyed in the 1755 earthquake of Lisbon. Thus, historians lost out on the opportunity to examine logbooks and diaries and anything else that Diaz and his comrades had written down about the voyage. So what we have is secondhand information put together from numerous sources over many centuries. I wanted to mention this because Diaz's voyage lacks the rich detail we have seen in other podcasts, which is all right. We just have to make do with what we have. So back to Diaz. As noted, he departed Lisbon in August of 1487 with three ships. It is known that Diaz had with him six African slaves, all of whom had been brought to Portugal by earlier expeditions. At several locations along the African coast, Diaz dropped off the slaves. Their mission was to visit the local natives and offer gifts and bring a message of friendship from the king of Portugal. The idea was to set the stage for establishing trade relations with the indigenous peoples. They were also to inquire about the lands of Prester John. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. It is believed that Diaz stopped at São Jorge de Minha, the fortress he had helped construct earlier in the decade on the Gold Coast. After taking on supplies, the expedition then continued south. Diaz and his squadron would reach the coast of Angola later in the year. Here they left off the last of the two African slaves. They also left the supply ship in a bay called Angra do Salto, guarded by nine men. Before leaving, Diaz would transfer the remaining provisions from the supply ship to his two caravels. The reason is that the caravels were swifter and more seaworthy than the supply ship, thus they were likely to make better time and withstand the rough weather that lay ahead. So, Sao Cristóvão and Sao Pantaleo continued south, reaching modern-day Walvis Bay, which is in Namibia, in December. It was the furthest south any European had ever traveled. Around the new year, Diaz and his two ships encountered a storm while off the coast of present-day South Africa. The storms pushed the ships west, away from the African coast and out into the ocean. The ships would endure the storms, but they would be sort of stuck in the middle of nowhere. At this point, Diaz made a critical decision. He could have headed directly east toward the African coast, but instead he decided to take what nature was giving him, using the westerly winds and letting it take his fleet further south and then east. 
Diaz didn't know it, but the winds would take the ships south of the tip of Africa. He then continued to ride the winds, going east and turning slightly north. For 30 days, Diaz sailed without sighting land. Then, on February 4th, 1488, the coast of South Africa came into view. They entered what is now Mosul Bay, about 300 miles east of the Cape of Good Hope. I recommend taking a look at explorerspodcast.com, and you can see a map of Diaz's voyage. So, Diaz would continue east along the coastline. He found that the coast not only went east, but it gradually inched north as well. Plus, the waters were getting warmer. This was a sign that the Indian Ocean was not far off. But Diaz would have some serious issues to consider. His ships were running low on supplies, and his men were getting nervous. No doubt scurvy was setting in. Some sources indicate that the ships were attacked by the indigenous peoples while at Mosul Bay, and while there were no injuries, the crew was concerned about tangling with hostile natives. Any landing to acquire food or water or provisions would run the risk of conflict, something the small fleet was not prepared for. For about a month, the two ships would continue along the coast of South Africa before they reached a rocky headland called, and here's a name I'm almost assuredly going to mess up, a rocky headland called Kwaihok, near the mouth of the Bozeman's River on May 12, 1488. They had traveled about 300 or so miles since landfall at Mosul Bay. At this point, Diaz wanted to continue on. His orders, after all, were to find a route to Asia, and he envisioned sailing all the way to India. But his men were not on board for such a voyage. One source says that Diaz appointed a council to discuss the matter, and they agreed the ships should turn around. They simply did not have enough provisions for continuing. Ultimately, Diaz would agree, but from our sources, it seems like he didn't have much of a choice. His crew was not going to go on. Diaz would plant a large stone cross called a padra at the location. The padra was inscribed with the coat of arms of Portugal, a visible staking of a claim to a region by Diaz for his nation. Thus, Kwaihok would mark the easternmost point that Diaz and his expedition would reach. Now, Diaz and his men had to get back home, which was no simple task. He would eventually come to the southernmost tip of Africa, the Cape of Good Hope. Of course, at the time, Diaz called it Cabo das Tormentas, the Cape of Storms, which, by the way, is a much more appropriate name. The Cape has long been considered one of the most dangerous spots in the world for a ship because of the tempestuous and unpredictable nature of the weather. I have read that in this time period, upwards of 20% of all ships that tried to sail around the Cape of Good Hope did not make it. But Diaz and his two ships would make a successful passage around the Cape, and the small fleet would turn north and head up Africa's western coast. Diaz's next stop would be to pick up the supply ship he had left at Angra de Solto on the coast of Angola. When they arrived, though, they found that six of the crew members were dead, the result of fighting with the native peoples. So Diaz would continue north up the African coast, reaching Lisbon in November of 1488. He had traveled nearly 16,000 miles, and in doing so, he had completed something that no man had ever done, rounded the Cape of Good Hope. The Portuguese now knew that they could sail around Africa and open a direct trade route to Asia. Even more remarkable, Diaz had accomplished this feat without losing a single ship. Diaz's voyage would be hailed in Portugal, but King John was reportedly disappointed that Diaz had not pressed his fleet further. Rounding the tip of Africa was great, but there was still a lot of unknown if a ship wanted to get to India. John had wanted Diaz to continue onward, perhaps even meet up with his spies, Peva and Coveya, and establish a definitive route to the Far East. And Diaz had not reached Ethiopia, and thus no word about Prester John and his Christian kingdom. But when all was said and done, a viable sea route around Africa was in the hands of King John and the Portuguese. However, the wheels of exploration can be slow, 
and John and his ministers did not press forward immediately with another expedition to actually reach India. Instead, the Portuguese waited while their spies continued to gather information in the Far East. Also, the rivalry between the Spanish and the Portuguese was growing, and King John likely had his eyes on the home front during this time. As for Diaz's expedition, one major thing would occur, and that would be King John rechristened the Cape of Storms as the Cape of Good Hope, the name it bears today. The new route, after all, signaled a potential new era for John in Portugal. Also, it offered a little PR move, as not many men wanted to sail their ships around the Cape of Storms. Cape of Good Hope? Sure, that sounds like a nice place. Cape of Storms? Bad. Anyhow, let us check in with Bartolomeu Diaz. As noted, in the aftermath of his expedition, there was speculation that King John was disappointed in Diaz, despite his accomplishments. We really don't know the exact details, but one thing we do know is Diaz was not offered any other major position by the king. For a time, Diaz would go to Africa and work at a gold trading site in Guinea. But it is not until 1497, a decade after his groundbreaking voyage, that Diaz stepped back into the history spotlight. A lot had happened in the world in the early 1400s. Christopher Columbus had run into a continent that no one in Europe actually knew about, a place most people believed was Asia. So the kingdoms of Spain and Portugal had a renewed interest in pressing what advantages they possessed. For Portugal, the Treaty of Tordesillas, signed in 1494, would give them a monopoly on any trade route to Asia around the African continent. Up to this point, the Portuguese had not followed up on Diaz's achievements, but that was going to change. Speaking of change, in 1495, King John II would die at the age of 40. He had no direct heir, so his cousin Manuel would become king. With competition between Spain and Portugal at its zenith, Manuel gave orders to send a fleet around Africa and to finally establish a trade route to India. The leader of the fleet was Vasco da Gama. King Manuel enlisted Diaz as a shipbuilder for the expedition, and Diaz would oversee the construction of two of the four ships in the fleet, including the flagship, São Gabriel. Da Gama would set sail in July of 1497 from Portugal. Diaz would accompany the fleet to the Cape Verde Islands, off the coast of Africa, but leave at this point of the journey. Da Gama would go on to round Africa, sail up the continent's eastern coast, and reach India. He would return to Portugal in 1499. A direct sea route to Asia had been established. With the success of da Gama, the Portuguese were quick to follow up with yet another expedition to Asia in 1500. Bartolomeu Diaz would be part of this expedition, although not the leader. That would fall upon Pedro Alvarez Cabral. It would be a large fleet, 13 ships and more than 1,500 men. Diaz would captain one of the ships in the expedition. His brother Diogo would also command a ship. The fleet set sail on March 9, 1500. After stopping in the Cape Verde Islands to take on supplies, the fleet took an odd route, striking out southwest instead of following the African coast to the south. Some have speculated that the reason for this odd course was that the continent of South America had been bumped into by the Spanish a few years previously, and Manuel wanted to do a little bit of a discovering of his own, so he had ordered Cabral southwest on a reconnaissance mission before heading to Asia. Whatever the story, we actually don't know the answer, the fleet would reach Brazil in April of 1500. The move would allow Portugal to put its claim on the region. After spending several weeks in Brazil, the fleet sailed east, aiming to make their way around the southern tip of Africa. The Cape of Storms would, unfortunately, live up to its name. The fleet ran into six straight days of storms as they tried to round the Cape, and eventually four of the ships would be lost, including the one commanded by Diaz. It is not known how Diaz's ship went down, perhaps his vessel was thrown on the rocks, 
or maybe it just succumbed to the elements and was torn to pieces. But what we do know is there would be no survivors. So Bartolomeu Diaz was dead, lost at sea, attempting to round the Cape of Good Hope. He was 49 or 50 years old. As a note, Cabral's fleet would reach India, but the cost would be heavy and its success would be limited. Diaz's brother, Diogo, would be the first European to reach Madagascar, as well as explore much of the eastern coast of Africa. So that is the life of Bartolomeu Diaz. As we noted earlier, his life and his voyages are void of a lot of detail. It would have been amazing to have gotten a journal or diary from Diaz or one of his men, but it was not to be. As for Diaz, his accomplishments have been muted in history. The big kudos have gone to those that followed, especially da Gama, as he was the one that ultimately reached India. But Diaz had done something no man had ever done, rounded the southern tip of Africa. It was an extraordinarily dangerous thing, and in doing so, Diaz had proven that a sea route to Asia was feasible. It was a major step in Portugal establishing itself as a world power. Soon, it would be Portugal who would have colonies and trading posts in Madagascar, East Africa, India, Brazil, Spice Islands, and many more places. And at this time, Portugal would become the greatest trading nation in the world, and Diaz's journey had helped make that happen. As for Diaz's family, they would have some kudos in their time. One of his children, Antonio, would become a Knight of the Order of Christ, a military order established in Portugal after the abolition of the Templars in the 14th century. And Diaz's grandson, Paulo Diaz de Noves, would become a colonizer in Africa, founding the city of Luanda in Angola in 1575. He would also become the first Captain General of Portuguese Angola. You can find numerous statues and monuments dedicated to Bartolomeu Diaz around the world, but the coolest one is the Diaz Cross Memorial, which is in Kwaihoke, the easternmost point in Diaz's epic journey. It was here that Diaz had set up a large stone cross, a padra, claiming the lands for Portugal. For hundreds of years, no one knew exactly where Diaz had landed, but in 1938, Professor Eric Axelson of the Department of History at the Witwatersrand University in South Africa uncovered the remains of the original cross, over 5,000 pieces. The many pieces of the Great Cross were sent to Witwatersrand University, but in 1941, a replica of the Padro was erected at the exact spot Diaz had placed his historic stone cross four and a half centuries earlier. Kind of cool. So that is our tale, the life of Portuguese explorer Bartolomeu Diaz, the first man to round the southern tip of Africa. I hope you enjoyed it, and thank you very much for listening. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.